We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. To drive recurring revenue, you need products and services that people use habitually, repeatedly, Organizations strive to design addictive subscriptions, but for every beloved membership, there seem to be a dozen offerings that drive subscription fatigue. So how do you design for engagement, retention, and expansion while ensuring that you've earned the right to do so? Best-selling author Nir Eyal has looked at this problem from both sides. His first book, Hooked, is a how-to guide for building habit-forming products. More recently, he wrote Indistractable to help individuals control their attention and choose the lives they want. On this episode of Subscription Stories, Nir and I talk about the specific processes and tools that drive habits, what it means for your subscription business, and how to be more deliberate about how we form our own habits. Nir, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Robbie. Great to be with you. So let's jump right in. You write at the intersection of psychology, technology, and business, and you call that space behavioral design. Before we dive into that, can you define what this space is and how you came to be focused and an expert on this very unique and narrow area? Sure. So I would say that behavioral design is the practical application of consumer psychology, specifically in tech products. Most of the, my clients over the years have been financial services technology companies, you know, fintech, educational products, edtech, healthcare products. So all kinds of products and services that rely on repeat behavior. So habits is my specialty. And so, of course, that's why we're connected, right? In terms of, of repeat behaviors, you've got on your book cover, the infinity symbol. And that's kind of my model as well. I use that similar metaphor of bringing people back again and again. And the idea here is that we are designing products and services to persuade that, that help people do the things that they themselves want to do, but for lack of good product design, don't do. And so that's our opportunity as product designers is to build the kind of products and services that really do improve people's lives if they would just use the product. <laughs> because as you know, there's this huge gap between intention and action. So our job as behavioral designers is to bridge that gap. So you've written two books, and I feel like they are almost in conversation with each other. One of them, the first one, Hooked, teaches entrepreneurs and product designers how to make products become habitual, as you said, and maybe even addictive. And then the second book, Indistractable, seems more targeted to the consumers and explaining to them how to focus on what matters most and to recognize and avoid distractions. Did you know that there was that there were going to be two books and kind of two sides to this coin, or did that happen organically? When I wrote Hooked, I didn't know there would be an indistractable as the follow-up book, but I definitely knew ethics were going to be an issue. And there's a whole section in Hooked called The Morality of Manipulation, which is all about how to apply this stuff ethically. But that was more targeted to the product maker. Uh, the Hooked was really about stealing the secrets of the most habit-forming products on earth, so Facebook and Instagram and Slack and WhatsApp and Snapchat, and figuring out what is it about these companies that makes their products so sticky so that the rest of us can use them too, right? Why should it just be the gaming company? 
companies and the social media companies that make products that we seem to really enjoy, that we love to interact with? What if we could use that same psychology, the same principles that makes those products so sticky to help people eat healthier or communicate with loved ones more often or be more productive at work? There's all kinds of things we can do to use those same methods, not just frivolity, but for life-enhancing purposes. So that's really the purpose of Hooked. Indistractable is about the other side of the coin, that if we can build products to build good habits, what do we do about those that build bad habits? Now, it's not a negation of each other, and I want to make sure I'm very clear. This is not about addiction. So an addiction is a pathology. An addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. As product designers, we would never want to intentionally addict people because addiction causes harm. Now, addiction can be an unfortunate byproduct of a product that is engaging, right? If your product is sufficiently widely distributed, somebody's probably going to get addicted to it, right? Because people get addicted to all sorts of things. But just because something is potentially addicted to somebody doesn't mean we're all addicted or that the product is intentionally designed to addict people. And I would argue actually that designing for addiction has some serious, not only ethical, but also business consequences, which we can get into in a bit, but it's about habits. Habits are nothing more than a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. And about 50% of our day-to-day behavior is done out of habit. It's just simply something we do on autopilot. So if we can automate, if we can habituate certain behaviors that improve our lives, that make us happier, healthier, more productive, and that's facilitated through some kind of technology, well, that's a great thing. As long as the user, as well as the maker, are aligned on that behavior. It's something that people themselves want to do, as I mentioned earlier, but for lack of good product design, don't do, right? We all know we should eat healthier, but we don't. We all know we should exercise, but it's really hard. We all know we should learn a new language or whatever. It might be that we have these aspirations to do, but the fact that it's hard to do makes us not do it. And so that's where really good product design and behavioral design can be very helpful. Indistractable is about what happens to those behaviors that we sometimes can take us off track from what we really want, from our values, from the life we desire. So what do we do about that? And so the the idea behind writing that book is, given the insider's perspective I have into how these products are designed, I can also tell you how you're much more powerful than these products are. That as good as behavioral design is, as persuasive as these techniques might be, they're good, they're not that good, (laughs) right? It's not mind control. You can't make people do things they don't want to do. It's fundamentally about aligning those interests. So it's not the same products. That's the takeaway. So I want people to get habituated to the language learning app, to the fitness app, to the productivity software. I want them habituated to that. We all do. But I also want to know in my own life and the lives of my children and my family members and my friends, how do we stop overusing or abusing products that don't serve us, that distract us? And by the way, it's not just about tech, right? Plato talked about distraction 2,500 years before the internet. The story of Adam and Eve is fundamentally a story of distraction, right? It's about eating from the tree of knowledge, the fruit of the tree of knowledge. We're curious. We want to know. We, and we get distracted based on these things that we later regret. So the idea here is not the same products. You want to get habituated to the good habits and you want to break those bad habits. And so that's where my background and my research comes in handy in both sections. Yeah, no, this is great. They're both, I think, really important in subscription models and in membership models because a big part of it, and I'm glad you brought up ethics, is the element of trust. The reason that I subscribe to something and don't look for alternatives and habituate myself to that product is not because I'm stupid and hopefully not because I was inadvertently made addicted to some product. It's because I believe that the vendor, that the product designer is actually trying to help me achieve an ongoing goal 
or solve an ongoing problem. And I love what you said about you can't be addicted without your sort of knowledge. You can't be forced to use the product if you really don't want to use it. And it reminded me of when you go to a show and you see a hypnotist and some people can't be hypnotized because they don't want to be. There is sort of a an agreement between the product, the product designer and the consumer. And the consumer says, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to go along for the ride. And you're going to make it easy for me to eat my broccoli and run my laps. So I think it's really important to think about that and that element of trust and ethics that have to be woven in, especially as consumers become more sophisticated about what's going on behind the screen. The reason that companies don't want to design for addiction is that addiction typically leads to burnout. That when someone is overusing a product, the vast majority of us, 95, 97% of us who aren't pathologically addicted, what happens is we use a product a lot, it's fun for a while, and then we say, oh my God, this is too much, right? And what do they do? They don't moderate the use. Many times people just quit, which is terrible. Tech companies, the successful ones, they don't want you to burn out on a product, right? Think about like gaming. We oftentimes talk about gamification. I think gamification is actually a terrible model for repeat engagement because what do people do with games, right? Who still plays Pac-Man? Almost nobody, right? Angry Birds, that's years ago. Nobody does that anymore. That's old, that's old news. Because what happens is you play, 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 and then you burn out, and then you get sick of it and you stop. What successful, long-term habit-forming products do, they don't want you to use it a lot for a little while and burn out. They want you to use the product for the rest of your life. And so that's why we see companies today, you know, Apple and Google, they are putting ways to use your phone less into the operating system. How many products can you mention, can you name that actually do that? And the reason is that they found that there's a healthy balance, that they want people to not overuse their products so that they resent their products. They want them to use them for a very, very long time. That's one very important point is that designing for addiction typically is not good for business. Now, there's some industries I won't work with that prey on addicts, gambling companies, alcohol, tobacco. There's certain companies that really, without the addicts, they wouldn't survive. And so there's an ethical line there. But for the vast majority of companies, trying to addict people is bad business. Habituating people, however, can be a very a good thing for the user as well as the company. And then one more point around any kind of design tactics are what we call dark patterns. Dark patterns are when we use these behavioral design tactics in a way that the user, that's not persuasive, but in fact, coercive. So persuasion is helping people do things they want to do. Coercion is getting people to do things they didn't want to do. And the, the big difference is one word. That one word is regret. That if a customer regrets using your product, not only will they not do business with you, they're going to tell all their friends on social media that you're not ethical. So it's, it's bad for business. It's bad for ethics to try and trick people. To try, and you definitely can. I mean, look, I wrote an article recently about the New York Times a subscription business that uses dark patterns. The New York Times uses dark patterns. They use what's called the Roach Motel technique. The Roach Motel is like those bait traps for roaches, right? Roaches go in, they never come out. That's the Roach Motel. And so what New York Times does, which is ironic because they were actually calling out I think it was Amazon or something, they were calling out some tech company. The New York Times love ragging on tech companies because they're in competition for attention. And so in the New York Times, they were saying this and, and I went back and I said, wait a minute, how hard is it to cancel the New York Times? To join the New York Times is super easy. You just give them your email address and they, oh, they start sending you a subscription. To cancel, you have to call a phone number from 9 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on weekdays only with an exception for lunch. And if you call, you'll be on the phone for over 30 minutes with somebody giving you every deal and discount and program. You can't just cancel online the way you signed up. No, it's a big ordeal to cancel. So they add all this friction on the back end. Well, that's something I regret. I regret signing up for the New York Times. If I had known that it was so hard to cancel, I wouldn't have done it. And so that's why it's so important to do that. Can you define dark pattern? 
Yeah. So it's using these behavioral design tactics in a way that coerces rather than persuades. Yeah. The New York Times is a great example. And I think a lot of other news organizations are doing similar things, also having very, very inexpensive trials, a dollar for six months or something along those lines. And then in month seven, it's a hundred dollars, let's say. I'm exaggerating. Is that also a dark pattern? Because they're sort of hoping that you'll forget that you subscribed and not notice that change from $1 to $10 or $100 or whatever the price change may be. Same thing with wait, wait, there's more as seen on TV kinds of subscriptions. That's why I think the ethical test for how to apply these techniques appropriately is what I call the regret test, which is where if you're in the conference room with your product team and you're thinking about how to apply behavioral design tactics, somebody can raise their hand and say, hey, we should run a regret test. A regret test is when we bring in users And we do what we always do in product design. We run user tests, right? We do user testing. We've done this for decades. And so with a regret test, we see if the user would do what we have designed for them to do, knowing everything we know. And we do this with a small number of users. We do this with five or six users. And we see, hey, if you knew that your subscription is going to go from zero free trial to 60 bucks next month, would you still subscribe? And by doing that small user test and saying, look, we have an ethical bar, right? I remember back in the day when I started in tech, we had the three nines technique that everything had to be that level of quality. It had to be uptime of triple nines. Well, you need some ethical bar as well. Let's say it's, hey, we need 100% of the users we do user testing with, 10 out of 10, need to say that, that they would pass the regret test. They wouldn't regret doing business with us, knowing everything we as the designer know. And so that's a very simple, cheap technique that you can use to see, to make sure that you're on the right ethical side. The good news is, Robbie, You almost never have to run this test because even the threat with your product team of saying, hey, we should run a regret test, people very quickly say, oh, you know what? Let's not use that technique because we may not pass. And of course, you want to know that now rather than later. (laughs) Right. It forces you back into the good behavior. Now, something that I was thinking about as we're talking about dark patterns and addiction and people who can't say no and can't separate themselves from your product. To be totally honest, in my experience of working with companies, it's a very small percentage of them that have products that are so addictive that people really can't stop using them. And most product designers are really struggling to build habits, like going back to your original example of, I want to get healthy. I know how, I don't need anyone to tell me, you know, eat less, exercise more, eat better foods, exercise thoughtfully. I just don't want to, or I don't make time, or I forget, or whatever, Let's say you're designing a weight loss program or a fitness. There's so many now. Can you take me through the hooked model, trigger, action, reward, investment, and talk about how, if you were a product designer, you would build good, healthy, whatever example you want, fitness, food, something else that would be a good habit? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because the real problem for the vast majority of products out there, people talk about ethics and they worry about addicting people, but yeah, nobody's getting addicted to enterprise software, right? <laughs> like, that's not a problem. Nobody's getting addicted to language learning, right? <laughs> like these are good things. We want these habits in our lives. I've just gone too far in my Spanish. I'm too fluent. Exactly. Just- I can't stop learning Spanish. Come on. I mean, I'm sure somebody might be addicted, but it's really not a problem you need to worry about as a product designer. The real problem is that nobody cares, right? <laughs> like people won't use the product that they themselves want to use, which is so, what's so difficult about product design is that people will tell you, oh, that's such a good idea. Yeah, I would totally use that product. But then when they actually have in their hands, they don't, (laughs) right? So it's the reason why is that people have what we call articulatable needs, the things that they will tell you they want, but what they actually do will be very different. So the right place to go when it comes to product design is not just talking to the customer, right? It, It used to be when we designed products, 
we would send a bunch of designers and engineers into a room or we'd hire some design firm and we'd say, okay, build this. They go away and then we'd see them six months later and say, here, here's your finished product. And 99 times out of 100, that product would fail because it didn't get out there and it wasn't tested with users. And so, but now we're enlightened, right? Now we do customer development. We use lean startup methodology, which is very good. We definitely should talk to our customers, but that's not enough. That because of this fact that people will tell you one thing and do something else, we also need to look to consumer psychology. We need to base our product design based on a model that helps us fail less often. We still need to fail. That's gonna be part of the process, right? You build, measure, learn, as Eric Reese taught us, you have to iterate. But the idea is to save time, money, and blood, sweat, and tears by building less of the wrong stuff. And so what I offer to the conversation is what's called the hook model. And the hook model is an experience that connects the user's problem with your product with enough frequency to form a habit. And a frequency is a really big deal. So the first criteria for forming a habit is that the behavior has to occur within a week's time or less. That the number one reason I'll tell a client or a company I'm thinking about investing in that I'm going to pass The number one reason is frequency. It's very difficult to change a customer habit if the behavior does not occur within a week's time or less. There are some exceptions, but they don't make the rule. The most important criteria is that the behavior occurs with sufficient frequency. But let's say it's check an app, look at a dashboard, uh, open a feed, whatever the case might be, do this behavior, and it does occur with sufficient frequency. By the way, the more frequent, the better, right? Part of the reason that these products are so habit-forming, if you think about our phones, the average smartphone user checks their phone 150 times per day. So very high habit-forming potential because of that incredible level of frequency. So let's say you have a product that's used at least once a week, preferably once a day or several times a week. The first step to the hook model is the trigger phase. There are two kinds of triggers. The first one you'll be very familiar with, these are called external triggers. An external trigger is a ping, a ding, a ring, some kind of call to action or outside environment that tells us what to do next. I'll get back to the second type of trigger in just a minute. So let's say you have an experience that sends you a notification, an email, whatever it might be. That's the first step, the external trigger. The next step is the action phase. The action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. And the idea here is to make that behavior as easy as possible. The first rule of usability design is the easier something is to do, the more people will do it. And so this is where we look at every potential factor of ability, as we call it, to make that behavior as easy as possible to do. The third step of the hook model is called the variable reward phase. Now, many products designers, they think, well, we just give people what they want and we're done. That's a missed opportunity because what you find is endemic to habit-forming products is that there's some element of variability, some bit of mystery, something that keeps us guessing and checking. That's a big part of what we call intermittent reinforcement that we see is at the core of habit-forming products. So something different, something that changes, something that's variable, is the the engine of the hook model. The fourth and final step is the investment phase. And this is the most overlooked of the four steps of the hook model. The investment phase is where the user critically puts something into the product to make it better with use. And so what you're doing when the user puts something into the product, data, content, reputation, skill acquisition, any of these things that the user is putting into the product What they're doing is creating what's called stored value. Stored value makes the product appreciate with use rather than depreciate. And that's what's really revolutionary about tech products is the investment of stored value. 
Finally, I told you I'd get back to the second type of trigger. Wait, before you go to the second trigger, let me just ask and make sure I'm understanding. So I understand trigger. So the health example, that might be a ding, time for you to get up and walk 250 steps or whatever. That's an extrinsic trigger. The action is I walk and that's easy to do. The action would be check the app, not the walking check yet. Check the app. Check the app. The, you'll get a ping and ding on your phone. Let's say you open the app. The variable reward would be what is the app telling me to do? What's the message, Right. The habit is, is just to open the app. That's what we want you to do. And the investment is then logging what you did, for example, or committing to something or liking something, anything that tells the product what you're doing and how you're getting better and making the app better in the process. And when you say the app is better in the process, it's better for me as the consumer. So the next time I come back, I will have a better experience because it knows me a little better because it has a little more information. It gives me a little more than it gave me the first time. So every visit back to this infinity model, part of this model is that each time I come back, it's better. Exactly. That's critical steps. So that the net result of the four steps of the hook model, eventually, and this is really where the magic happens, you don't need external triggers anymore. So a habit forming product, you, the way you know, hey, we accomplished our goal, we created a consumer habit, is that the user starts using the product without an external trigger. They begin to prompt themselves with what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape. So if you notice every habit forming product, when you get home from work and you're tired and you just want to zone out, check Netflix, right? You open up Netflix with little or no conscious thought. When you don't know what to do at work, you're on email or Slack. Even without a notification, you're opening these apps. You're using these services, not because of a ping ding or ring, but because of a feeling. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was just with my mother-in-law for the last week and she loves her Fitbit. And there's a certain number of steps you're supposed to take every hour. And it reminds you that you're supposed to do it to, I don't know, close the rings or something like that. What was really interesting is that sometimes at the beginning of the hour, she'd say, you know what, I'm going to do my steps now so that I don't have to worry about it later. Like she almost couldn't go do the thing that was going to take more than an hour because she knew she'd miss her timing. And I think that's a really good example of this intrinsic motivation. Like she almost doesn't need to be reminded anymore of the hours. She feels it. Like if she hasn't walked in an hour, she knows she needs to do it. Right. And think about that from a business model perspective, right? The fact that a company no longer has to spend money on advertising or has to risk sending you spammy messages that you may unsubscribe from. Now you have formed an association with a feeling, right? Whether that's fear, boredom, uncertainty, stress that when I feel this way, the solution is found in the product's use. And so that's really where this habit takes hold and where it becomes very powerful in people's lives. Now they're changing their behavior on their own facilitated by this product. So they don't need the notifications anymore. So the external triggers are almost the training wheels to send people through the four steps of the hook model so that eventually they use it on their own habitually because every time they feel an internal trigger, they use the product. That makes great sense. And for a product designer, just going through those steps and saying, what's the external trigger? What's the desired action that I want this consumer to do? What is the intermittent reward? So that reward is different every time or, you know, sometimes surprising and, and delightful. And then what kind of investment am I going to ask them to make? Or better yet, is the product automatically going to learn from the behavior that will make the product more valuable? And then you said that ultimately turns into an internal, the internal trigger that second kind of trigger, which is much more valuable. I've heard people say, a lot of product people have said, when you build a subscription-based product, the product is the marketing tool. That in other words, it's the experience of being in the product that makes you want to use the product more as opposed to external emails or reminders 
that direct you back. It's something about the way the product itself is designed that is actually fulfilling the role that used to be fulfilled maybe by a Marcon person. Absolutely. And this is what's so revolutionary, right? If you think about the great brands of the past, the way they changed consumer behavior was through what's called the mere exposure effect, right? So Coca-Cola had to advertise ad nauseum (laughs) to make you see that logo again and again and again, because we know the more you see a logo, hear a jingle, see a celebrity's face, the more affinity you have for that object. That's super expensive, right? Whereas today, if you look at what is the ad budget, of Google or Facebook or Slack. I mean, these companies spend almost nothing on ads. Why? I mean, as proportion, I mean, of course they do, but in proportion to how much money commodity products have to spend, like BP, right? Or somebody who's for a non-habit forming product, how much money they have to spend on these mere exposure ads, it's puny in comparison. And the reason is it's not the mere exposure effect they're using. What they're using is the product design itself because the product is designed to be habit forming that's what creates that association, not the expensive ads. So I want to move on to the research that you did for Indistractable and some of these ideas on the consumer side. And how do we live in harmony with all of this technology? And I know on the edge cases, there are some addictive products that are dark and we need to be aware of them and and avoid them. And at the other end is this whole slew of products that nobody wants to use, even though they said they were going to use them. But in the middle... There are products that you can use the right amount. Like, for example, let's talk about Netflix. You gave that example, right? I'm tired. I come home. I want a Netflix and chill. Great. If my Netflix and chill ends up keeping me from getting my job done or taking care of my family or being present for my loved ones, that becomes an issue. How do you recognize when a product, as you said, going from persuasion to coercion or when it's going from helping me achieve an ongoing goal, which might be, I want to relax. I want to be entertained. I want to just have a little treat at the end of my hard day into this is a problem. How do I recognize that? And what can I do to manage my time better? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny you mentioned Netflix because Reed Hastings, the CEO, said that their biggest competitor for Netflix is not YouTube. It's not TikTok. The biggest competitor for Netflix is sleep. So look, the first thing we need to realize is that these companies are not going to do it for us. And it's not just tech companies, right? I mean, the New York Times is not going to say, hey, you've read enough news, go have a life. The NFL is not going to say, okay, enough football, go be with your kids. That's not going to happen, <laughs> right? These products are designed, every media company designs their product and service to be engaging. That is why we use them. And we're not going to say, hey, Netflix, stop making such good shows. Hey, Apple, stop making your products so user-friendly. I like to use it all the time. That's the point, <laughs> right? We want them to be engaging. When I asked you about ethics, I feel like you went straight to almost illegal, right? Things that are regulated, things that are obviously harmful. But there is this gray area And I think Netflix is a good example. I love Netflix. I did a lot of work for them. I think it's a great company. It is about enjoyment. It is about entertainment. It is about relaxation. Even the fact that he says, that Reed Hastings says, Netflix's biggest competitor is sleep, and we know that most people don't get enough sleep, that could be seen as a little dark, right? Not the best outcome. Would somebody, what did you say? Would they regret it? The regret test? I think a lot of people would say when they look at Netflix, it does not pass the regret test. Like, what did I do? Why did I stay up till three in the morning watching episodes of some show? I'm not exactly sure what my question is here, but I think there's a piece of this ethically from the designer side. And then personally, how do I manage against a company that really isn't always in my best interest? So for the people who are, I think, deserve protection. So children, I think, 
we need as product designers you have to design for that use case of children who might not be ready for our products so that's of course that's obvious for addicts too i've been advocating for years now that products like netflix like facebook they need what we call a use and abuse policy i think there should be some kind of stopping cue inside netflix that says hey you've been watching for a long time <laughs> are you sure you want to keep watching now they do have something similar but it's not for the right reasons they do have a thing that comes up that says you've been watching for a long time that's because they think people are playing in the background and they want to make sure you're still there but i actually think we should say like hey do you know that you've watched this much tv like is that still what you want to do not so much for the overwhelming majority of people who are not addicted but actually for the people who are using netflix as a numbing agent as an escape mechanism who are pathologically addicted I think they deserve special protection because these companies know how much people are using. They have that ethical bar as opposed to, look, the alcohol companies, they don't know who the alcoholics are. How could they reach out? But if you know someone might be abusing your product, I think you do have an ethical responsibility. But okay, put that aside. That's the company's responsibility. When it comes to our personal responsibility, so 95 to 97% of us who are not addicted, who are not pathologically addicted, and who are not children, I hate to say it's our responsibility. It's not our fault, right? You didn't create Netflix, you didn't create Twitter, you didn't create these things that distract you, but it is your responsibility. Because the price of progress, the price of living in a world with so many cool, interesting things in it, is that we have to learn how to be indistractable. That's the price, folks. You get to live in the greatest time in human history. The price is you gotta learn some new techniques, right? And guess what? It's not that hard, (laughs) right? So how do we do it? It's pretty simple. Number one, We master the internal triggers. Here's the icky, sticky truth that nobody wants to hear. The vast majority of distraction begins from within. So studies find that only 10% of the time that we check our phones, are we checking them because of an external trigger? Remember external triggers, pings, dings, and rings? 10%. The other 90% of the time that we check our phones, we are checking because of an internal trigger. Boredom, loneliness, stress, anxiety, fearfulness. That is 90% of the time we check our phones. So if we don't master our internal triggers, they become our masters. So whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much food, too much Facebook, too much football, you are going to find a distraction unless you understand the internal trigger that is driving you to deal with discomfort in this unhealthy way. Because distraction, it's not a moral failing. There's nothing wrong with you. It's simply that we haven't learned how to deal with discomfort in a healthy way that leads us towards traction rather than distraction. So that's step number one. You have to figure out what those feelings are. And people don't like to talk about it because we like to blame these big, bad technology companies. But I'm telling you, even without the technology, people have been struggling with distraction forever. And they always will unless we know why, what we are looking to escape emotionally. So that's step number one. Step number two is making time for traction. There's nothing wrong with watching Netflix, Robbie. The thing is, when we use these products to escape our life, right, which in moderation is fine, right? It's okay to escape reality for a little bit and get really immersed into a book or a movie or whatever it is, a video game, as long as it's done on your schedule, not someone else's. So this is about making time for attraction or what I like to call turning your values into time. So if the person you want to become is the kind of person who plays video games for an hour a day, great but put it on your calendar. What you're doing is you're turning distraction into traction by scheduling time for it. And it's not just about tech stuff, it's about your work, it's about time with your family, your friends, time for yourself. We've got to start keeping what's called the time box calendar, and I show you exactly how to do that in the book, Indistractable. The third step is to start hacking back those external triggers. So I use the word hack because to hack means to gain unauthorized access to something, right? Like a computer hacker would gain access to your bank account, right? So that's to hack. 
We know these companies, whether it's the New York Times, Fox News, CNN, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, all of them are trying to hack your attention. But we don't have to let them, right? We can hack back. How about we start changing those notification settings, right? It takes five minutes. Why the heck would you want these notification settings to constantly ping and ding you? You have control. It literally takes you five minutes and we can change those notification settings. Two thirds of people with a smartphone never do. So this is simple stuff, right? We can't start complaining that these companies are addicting us and hijacking our brain before we take a few steps to change these settings that they make it easier than ever to do. But that's the kindergarten stuff. What about meetings that are complete waste of time? What about emails that are nothing more than distractions? So I show you systematically how to go through each and every one of these external triggers. And then finally, the last step to becoming indistractable is to prevent distraction with pacts. A pact is a pre-commitment that we use to make sure that as the last line of defense, we don't go off track, we don't get distracted. So it's really with those four steps, those four big strategies, master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. This is how anybody can become indistractable. It's great to have those tools. And the one for me that's the most meaningful is to recognize it right? To start by recognizing what's going on. And you talked about the regret test for the product designers, but I think for the consumer, if I feel regret after I did something, if I wake up the next morning and say, I shouldn't have eaten so much, I shouldn't have stayed up till four in the morning watching TV. I shouldn't have ignored my family and read the New York Times cover to cover. If I feel regret, that's a good signal to start going through those four steps and say, what can I do to get my time back and my focus back? There's a really good quote by uh, Poelo Coelho. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So if a distraction gets you one time, sure, it happens to me that I get distracted from something new that I haven't gotten distracted from before. Okay, you got me once. But if you constantly get distracted by the same thing again and again, I wanted to work on a big project and darn it, I checked email for 30 minutes. I wanted to be with my kids and look at me, I'm scrolling Twitter or reading the news instead. Okay, happens once, you get a pass. But if it keeps happening, a distractible person allows the same distractions again and again. An indistractable person says, no, look, distractions only have three potential causes, an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it. So an indistractable person takes steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. Love that. You ready for a couple of questions? Sure. Fire away. Okay. First subscription you ever had? First subscription I ever have, I'm sure it was to a magazine. I think it was like Surfer Mag. I used to think I would be a surfer, even though I never did. <laughs> I didn't know that. You're a surfer? No, no, I was not. But I like the idea of being a surfer. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Most valuable subscription you have today? Most valuable subscription I have today uh, is to an app called Pocket. And Pocket is this wonderful service that every time I see an article online, I have a rule I never read on my desktop. So what you do with Pocket, you save that article to this app called Pocket, and it will read to you the text. So I, I'm dyslexic, so I read very slowly. Ironic for an author to be dyslexic, but that's the case. So what I love about it is that I can listen to articles read to me without all the clickbait, without all the ads, without all the junk that's designed in the New York Times to get you to keep scrolling and scrolling. Rather, I listen to these articles read to me when I'm exercising. So that's probably my, my most valuable subscription. I use it several times a day. Most valuable course you took at the Stanford GSB that you're still using today? Most valuable course. I took a class with Andy Ratcliffe, who is a legendary Silicon Valley investor. He's a VC. He used to be a benchmark. I don't think he's there anymore, but he did the eBay deal, which at the time was the most successful investment in Silicon Valley history when he did that deal. It blew my mind in terms of the venture capital business. I didn't know how venture capital worked at all. I didn't know how Silicon Valley worked at all. I didn't know how investment worked at all. And so at that class, I think the lessons I still use every day. And a habit that you're working on right now. 
many of the behaviors that we do are not habits and they never will be habits, they're routines. So one routine I'm working on, by the way, which kind of answers your question is that after dinner, only read, only read after dinner. But that's not a habit because it's not done with little or no conscious thought. It's a practice. It's a series of behaviors frequently repeated. So I would call it a routine, but I think that answers your question. Yeah, perfect. And by the way, I love the distinctions that you make and the definitions that you throw out there. I think a lot of times not having clear definitions of things like habits, routines, persuasion versus coercion, having precision in language is so helpful, not just in designing products, but in managing everything in your life. So kudos to you for that discipline and for that ability to be so articulate. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. I learned a lot just from the conversation. And I want to thank you for being a guest on Subscription Stories. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Robbie. It's always great to connect with you and very much appreciate you having me. That was Nir Eyal, Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Hooked and Indistractable. For more about Nir, go to nireyal.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of our conversation, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcast or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Near and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. 